Good morning. Um, we are continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Mark. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Now, I know it's a normal rhythm that we read the entirety of the text and stand for that reading. But today, for the sake of brevity, what I'm going to do is kind of slice it up and go through it as we just kind of travel through the narrative together. So you'll just remain seated and there'll be slides that are going to be up on the wall uh, when necessary. So we're in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 um, through 31. And this is the famous story in the Bible that has been called the story of the rich young ruler or the rich young man. In fact, if you have a physical Bible uh, or even in your digital Bible, it may have a heading or something that says something like that, the, the, the rich young ruler, the rich young man, something like that. I would submit to you that perhaps today, as we finish up this uh, sermon, that the better title for that would be the sad young ruler, the sad young man. And we'll get into that and uh, some more here. But we're going to start off in Mark 10. You can keep your seats in Mark 10, verses 17 through 18. <clears throat> And it says, as he, Jesus, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So let's pause there for a second. Jesus is approached by this young man. This man calls him good teacher. In other words, this man recognized that Jesus had something valuable to say and teach about eternal life, but he wasn't recognizing him as God, right? And so Jesus calls him out on it. Jesus is essentially saying this, well, if I'm not God to you, if I'm just a teacher If I'm not God, then why do you call me good? Right? You've said two contradicting things. And furthermore, what he's pushing back on this guy, and we'll get into this some more, he's pushing back on not just this understanding about, you know, hey, who do you say that I am? But Jesus is also simultaneously pushing back on this guy's understanding of himself. He's saying the only person who is good is God. And in a moment, we're going to find out that this guy doesn't believe that. This guy doesn't believe that the only person that is good is God. So Jesus is pushing back on on the realities of this guy has a distorted view of who Jesus is, and this guy has a distorted view of himself in, in saying good teacher. But Jesus does graciously answer the man's question. He says in verse 19 and in verse 20, Jesus says, you know the command, commandments. Do not murder, that's the sixth commandment. Do not commit adultery, that's the seventh commandment. Do not steal, eighth. Do not bear false witness, that's the ninth commandment. Do not defraud or covet, that's the tenth. Honor your father and mother, that's the fifth. And he, the man, said to Jesus, to him, well, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. So the guy's like, so I am good. I am good, right? God isn't the only one that's good. I am good too. 
uh, I've kept all of these. In verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, ah, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now, I want you to look at the commandments. There's gonna be the commandments up on the wall here uh, behind me. And where does it say that you have to sell everything that you have to give it to the poor and to go and follow Jesus? Like, did Jesus forget the 10 commandments? What was Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is pointing out that this man has a relationship with money where he might have been able to take all of these and say, check, 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 check to five through 10. But Jesus is trying to show him that his relationship with money has caused him to violate all of the commandments that Jesus left out, one through four. First commandment, shall have no other gods before me. Jesus is revealing to this guy, you haven't kept the commands. You love God or you love money more than you love God. No idols, no graven images. Well, you might not have fashioned an idol or fashioned a graven image, but you are worshiping, you are idolizing your money. Don't take the name of God in vain. How can you say that you are identifying with God and putting all your hopes, dreams, and, and uh, security in God when actually, how can you claim that when actually you're not doing any of that? You're, do, you're putting your hope, dreams, and confidence in your own self-sufficiency in money. You've taken the name of the Lord in vain. It's not true for you. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath wasn't just a time to rest, it was. But for them, it was also a time. And for us, it should also be a time for us to reflect that we are not sustained by what we do, but that we're sustained by the grace of God. And so he had violated the Sabbath to keep it holy because he didn't actually believe that it was God that sustained him. He believed that it was his money that sustained him. So he's showing this man, you haven't kept the commandments. Your relationship to money is causing you to violate God's commands. But even further, even further, check this out. This is really interesting. All of these commandments, five through 10, that Jesus listed, that the guy said, I'm good, all of those relate to man. And the first four relate to God. Do you remember how Jesus said, all of the law really hangs on two great truths, love others and love God? That's what Jesus said. Well, Jesus is showing this guy, hey, you might be the best neighbor in the world. You might have kept half the law, but you've forgotten you've violated the most important half of the law, which is to love God. You've completely abandoned that. You've violated literally every single commandment that relates to God. In other words, Jesus is pushing back and telling this guy again, oh, you think you're good? You think you're good. No one is good except for God. It's not enough just to be a good neighbor, to, to um, 
work really hard to love your fellow men. It's not just good enough to be a good person. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that eternal life doesn't hinge on being a good person, but rather on your relationship with God. And Jesus is showing this man that if he, Jesus, is just a good teacher, then there is no such thing as eternal life. Jesus must be God, and this man must have a relationship with Jesus. That's why Jesus is saying, listen, let go of your money, and you wanna complete these other four commandments? Great, then come and follow me. Become one of my disciples. And then, and then you will have completed, you'll have corrected what you are doing. And what Jesus is ultimately saying to this guy and to all of us is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Am I just a good teacher? Is that all I am? Or am I God? Uh, Jesus is saying, I am the, you've come to me saying, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus is trying to show him, it's not about what you do, it's about who you know. I am the way to eternal life. It's not about rule keeping, it's about having a relationship with God. And when you try to earn it, it always leads in one of two places. And you've probably heard this before, or perhaps you've heard it before if you've been here at the Oaks for a long time. When you, when you have this perspective that you can earn it, it always leads to one of two places, pride or despair. Always, always. When you try to earn it, it always leads to pride or despair. Pride, when you feel like you're doing a really good job, like, ah, I'm doing a pretty good job. Ha, I must be morally superior to other people. I must be earning, I've earned my way, right? Or despair, when you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that, right? And I don't know if you're like me, but in my most honest moments, there's things that I'm like deeply ashamed of that I've done, deeply ashamed of. I don't know, my Bible's full of a lot of bad people that have done bad things. Um, David, right, King David, oh yeah, King David slew, slew Goliath. Uh, or the Apostle Paul, oh, Apostle Paul, amazing. Or Moses, right, leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, right? Good guys, right? Or every single one of those guys that I just mentioned was also a murderer. Every single one of them were murderers. It's not what you've done. The story of the Bible is it's not what you've done. It's who you know. Are you following Jesus or not? Do you want to know if you're having eternal life? Are you following Jesus or not? Uh, but our attempts at moral self-sufficiency, so they always lead to, to pride or despair, right? Pride or despair, that's where they always lead. And so Jesus is trying to show this guy and show all of us that it's by grace, not of works, not of money, not of anything else. There's no such thing as self-sufficiency when it comes to eternal life. It's following Jesus. And then in verse, uh, verses 21 and 22, back to the text. Verse 21, and Jesus, again, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This has got to be one of the saddest 
texts in the entire Bible. Jesus loves him. And so Jesus gives him a straight answer. What's fascinating is like up to this point, Jesus has been super cryptic with everybody, right? Jesus is always like speaking in language that nobody understands. And then when people are like, so what do you mean, Jesus? And he's like, he who has ears, let him hear. It's like, come on, Jesus, come on, you know? Uh, Jesus is so, you know, know, he's so metaphorical and and, and, uh, he's hard to understand. But Jesus meets this guy exactly head on, right where this guy is at. This guy asks a straightforward question and Jesus gives him a straightforward answer. Man, well, I'll tell you exactly what you need to do to inherit eternal life. And the guy knew what Jesus was doing based on his response. This guy knew what Jesus was doing. He knew that Jesus was saying that he had violated all of those commands. He got it. He got it. And he understood that Jesus was saying, hey, don't do that anymore. Abandon that that sense of security and, and idolatry that you have towards money. Forsake that and come and follow me. And it says that he's disheartened. And that's a poor translation in our English uh, um, translation. Some of your translations might actually say that his face fell. That's a better translation. It's like this idea of his body. You could see it on his body language. When Jesus says this thing to him, hey, this is what you need to do. Abandon your money and come follow me. The guy is literally like downcast. Like, oh, because it said he had great possessions. His head falls. He goes away sad. And in this guy, I see myself and I see a lot of us. Our addiction to sin and our addiction to our idols is profound. And my sorrow alone, and this guy's sorrow alone, isn't enough to change me. I need outside help. I need outside intervention. At least this guy was honest in his his rejection of Jesus. Jesus gives him a direct answer to the question that he asks, and this guy knowingly walks away from it. Oh, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. The Bible is full of drama. The Bible is full of magic. It's full of miracles. It's full of mystery. The Bible has sex. The Bible has violence. The Bible has action. And here we see that the Bible has tragedy, deep tragedy. And then look in verses 23 through 26. 23 through 26, Matthew 10. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus is telling him, listen, it's really hard for someone who has money and wealth and a sense of self-sufficiency like that to let all of that go and instead cling to God. And the, but the disciples are still operating under this pretense that money equals God's blessing. 
Money equals God's blessing. That's the pretense that they're operating under. And by the way, that's the pretense that most of what I call cultural Christianity or evangelicalism here in the United States, that's most of like what passes for faith, unfortunately, today, that money equals God's blessing, that God's blessing is always equated as like, oh, okay, I've, I, God, is, God loves me and he's blessing me because I have, I have some cash. Like turn on any televangelist preacher today and they're probably preaching uh, not a gospel of grace and repentance, but a gospel of uh, health, wealth, and prosperity. A gospel that says God's plan for your life is the fulfillment of the American dream. And that's not the gospel around here. And in the scriptures, the Bible calls that a load of crap. <laughs> Paul literally said that. It's dung. But that's what our human instinct is. Oh, I've got material things. I've got God's blessing. So the disciples are totally in that frame of mind. This guy appears to be financially blessed by God. And he's a really good guy. He's a really great guy. And so they're saying to themselves, wait a second, if this guy's got God's financial blessing and this guy has kept right, the law this well, I know I haven't kept the law like this guy. This, if this guy is this good and this blessed and he is not getting it and he's not in, then who is? Who does have eternal life? And Jesus is essentially telling them, you're finally getting it. Exactly. Exactly right. Nobody can. Nobody can. 27, verse 27. It says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus is saying exactly, nobody can make it on their own. When it comes to um, eternal life, everyone needs my help. And poor Peter, Peter, here he is again, Peter's always functioning out of this fragile ego. The man can't shut up ever. Like, you know, Jesus is the first and the last in scope of eternity, but Peter is the first and last in, in the scope of talking, right? He's always the first to speak and the last one to stop talking. The guy doesn't keep anything to himself. You know, he's one of those people that just, if the idea like is in their head, they have to say it out loud. And, and so sometimes that, about, Peter's about 50-50. Half the time that goes really, really well for him. Oh, Peter, blessed are you. The Holy Spirit gave you that answer. And Peter's like, woohoo. And then like two minutes later, uh, he's being told, Peter, what are you talking about? Get behind me, Satan, right? Peter, he, he, he's just blurting out any, you know, whatever comes to his head. But, but this is one of the occasions where Peter gets it right. So Peter hears Jesus say it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And he understands that Jesus was telling this sad man, if you leave it all and follow me, you're in. You've got eternal life. And so in verse 28, in verses 28 through 31, this is what we see. Matthew 10, 28. So Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. 
And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Even though Peter has a long way to go, <laughs> I mean, and Peter's got some, some serious uh, issues that he's gonna have to deal with in the future from this point. But even where Peter is at here, where he's like, listen, Jesus, we, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus is like, yes, you have. And you're in, Peter, you're in. Now, as, as, as a lot of you know, I, I think metaphorically, and so I like illustrations. And so uh, for me, my brain doesn't make sense of a narrative or anything in scripture really, or anything in life, unless I can attach it to some kind of like metaphor in my head. Uh, some of you think like that, and some of you are like, no, we don't, I don't think that way at all. But so I was trying to think of an illustration or a story in my mind that would help me understand, help me distill everything that's going on in this text down to like a single thought or idea. And so here's, here's, here's how I made sense of it in my mind. Now imagine with me, this is, this is imaginary, but imagine with me, you guys know that I actually did have uh, knee surgery on my ACL, okay, um, at, at the end of August. And I've been on a long road of recovery um, ever since then. When I first got out of surgery, um, I was completely helpless. I mean, in bed. If I needed to go use the bathroom or to bathe, I had to have help. Do you know how humbling it is to not be able to go to the bathroom or bathe yourself? <laughs> how humbling that is? So it was deeply humbling. But now imagine, the thought experiment, imagine the absurdity. If I had gone in after a week and had gone into the doctor uh, and I sit down with the doctor and I say, okay, I had the knee surgery. Uh, what must I do from here on out to get healthy again? What must I do to be whole? And the doctor said, well, you know, you need, you're gonna need a lot of rest. Uh, you're gonna need to be eating healthy. And I say, oh, <laughs> I've been doing those things for a long time. I get great rest. I eat really, I eat, I'm eating healthy. And he says, okay, great, but hang on, I'm not finished. Um, you'll also need to follow me and follow your physical therapists and do everything that we tell you to do. You need us. You're not gonna have a full recovery unless you follow what we have to say. Now imagine if I said, well, listen here, doctor, you know, I kind of want to be self-sufficient on this one, you know? Like, in fact, I don't even really want to use my crutches or my wheelchair. I don't want to use a brace. Um, I don't really feel like I have the need for a doctor or a therapist. I feel like I've got this, you know? Um, I really want to be healed, but what I really care about more than that is being self-sufficient, you know? Now, am I being wise or unwise in this thought experiment, right? Unwise, exactly. 
Exactly, right? Even a child can intuit that this would be unwise. (laughs) And here is why we all intuit that it would be unwise. Because we all know, and even a child knows, that there is a level of brokenness that the physical body can experience that requires outside intervention. (laughs) Right? There's a level of brokenness that my body was in and that we, our physical bodies can find itself in that where we have to have outside intervention. And there is a kind of brokenness of our souls that we have all experienced that requires outside intervention from Christ. I've heard people say, religion is a crutch. Jesus is a crutch. Have you heard people say that? Religion is a crutch, Jesus is a crutch. Meaning, you know, like, oh, I don't need, Jesus is for those that have some kind of deficiency. And the implication is, I don't have a deficiency, so therefore I don't need Jesus because I don't need a crutch. And I would say to that person, two things. One, you're not very self-aware, okay? And number two, Jesus is not like a crutch. He's more like life support for me. I'm so broken that if I disconnect from Jesus, it's only a matter of time before I will die. And I believe that that's the reality for all of us, that we're so broken, we're so broken that we need him for eternal life. And so this entire text here is Jesus attacking our idea of self-sufficiency, whatever that looks like for you. For this guy, it was money. The irony is that many times in our proclamations of a kind of loyalty to God, we are actually declaring our independence from God, right? This, that, that's what happened here. This rich guy shows up knowing that he's a good guy. And I think that he was showing up thinking, man, I'm a pretty good Christian. I've done a lot of really good things. I think he was expecting to go up to Jesus and to get a high five. You know, I think he was expecting Jesus to be like, eternal life? Oh, dude, you're in. You're so in. Why are you even at? Like, oh, you're in. And, uh, but his relationship with money had made him independent of needing Jesus. In his mind, he's proclaiming a kind of loyalty to God. What he's actually done with his life is declare independence from God. And I think it shocked him a little bit when Jesus revealed that to him, when Jesus showed him that actually he didn't want God at all. He wanted self-sufficiency. But again, this unfortunately is the sad perspective that that we call faith in America, American evangelicalism. We conflate money for blessing. We conflate control for influence. And we conflate power for justice. And then taking the, names, the name of the Lord in vain, we, we take his name and we wield money, control, and power as though these are the principal tools of Christian faith. And they are not. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who suffer for my name's sake. And Jesus says to you, and you should bless those who curse you. 
and you should pray for those who mistreat you. We are continually trying to displace our need for Jesus with something else and sometimes good things, right? We take the good things and make them God things. Is money good? Money's good. Like, I don't know about you, but money uh, keeps the lights on here. Your money does that. Uh, I know that the money that I earn, it puts a roof over my head. It puts food in the mouths of my children. There's a good utility for money. And does the Bible ever talk about financial things as being a blessing? Yeah, it actually does. It does. But Romans 1 shows us that oftentimes what we do is we take the good gifts that God gives us and and we don't just see them as good gifts. We see them as ultimate things. We turn them into a kind of God. And in Romans 1, it says that we exchange the truth for a lie and we worship the things of the world as opposed to the God of this world. And so how do we not do that? How do we not end up like the sad young man, the sad young ruler? What perspectives do we need to have? Well, I think Jesus gives us some really great ideas here. First, Jesus tells this guy to sell everything he has, to give it to the poor and to come and follow him. That's really extreme. That's really extreme. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, something even more extreme. I mean, like crazy talk. Jesus says in Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, pop that sucker out, (laughs) pluck it out. Jesus says, hey, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Now, Jesus wasn't, he was, again, being metaphorical, typical Jesus. But what Jesus was trying to communicate is what Paul says in Romans 8, 13, which is this. If you live according to your flesh, you will die. But if you live by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body and put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. In other words, Jesus, what Jesus is saying is what, the, what theologians have called the mortification of the flesh or the mortification of your sin, the mortification of your idols, putting to death your sin and idols. Jesus is saying you need to really, really, really take seriously this idea of going after your sin, of killing your sin, of fighting your sin, right? You wanna, you wanna follow me? It's gonna mean waging war against yourself oftentimes, And we do this not to try to like earn salvation, but because we're trying to uh, get rid of anything inside of us that's gonna compete for our attention and loyalty and love of God. So that's the first first step, uh, is, is looking inwardly and saying, what are my besetting sins? What are the idols that are inside of me that I need to root out, actively root out and wage war against. I can remember um, having a conversation with Pastor Kevin Jameson years ago. And I remember him telling me, he was the pastor, head lead pastor of this church. And I remember him telling me, I'd rather have a church full of people that struggle with the same sins every day, but every day they're waging war against those sins. Every day they're getting up and they're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting against those sins. I'd rather have that 
than a church full of a bunch of really good people that sin only once or twice a month, but when they do, they don't wage war against it at all. They just, eh, whatever. I'm a pretty good person. I don't really need to fight that. I'm gonna be kind of apathetic or surrender that part of myself. And what Jesus is saying is, no, if you're gonna be my disciple, you, you can't be apathetic about the mortification of your sins and idols. You gotta be really, really serious about it. You've gotta, you've gotta be really serious about this. But secondly, if you wanna follow Jesus, it's not just about the mortifications of, your, of taking that seriously, um, fighting against your sin and idols, but also Jesus is kind of saying this, hey, following me is gonna feel like losing. Following me is going to feel like losing or being a reject. He tells them, hey, uh, you're gonna be rejected by your own families. Your dad, he'll reject you. Your own mama, she might reject you. You're gonna miss out on opportunities for for money, for land, your own kids might reject you. In other words, Jesus is saying that, hey, often in this life, following me is gonna feel like being a reject, like a, in the margins, a loser. Think of, think of what happened with Jesus' disciples. Everything went really well for them, right? No, well, I mean, you hit, Jesus had one disciple who rejected him, right, Judas, and so Judas committed suicide and, and had left and abandoned the disciples. But of the 11 faithful, of the 11 faithful that remained faithful to Jesus, everything went really, really well for them, right? No. Of the remaining 11, 10 of them were killed. <laughs> they were martyred for their faith. And the only one who wasn't martyred for his faith ended up being exiled as an old man. He's exiled to an island, to a deserted island. So there's this paradox, there's this tension that we have to accept as Christians, and it's this, that Jesus covers the debt for sin. We pay nothing, we do nothing, we don't earn it. That is the gospel, that's the good news. But also, Jesus says that the cost of discipleship is really, really high, and that following him is gonna feel like losing. Jesus says that those who lose in this life, though, they win in the next one. So those two things, mortification of your sins and idols, you gotta understand it's gonna feel like losing. But then lastly, and I hope this is an encouragement to you guys, if you want to follow Jesus, he will help you. He will sustain you and you are in. I love, I love that Peter is in this text because Peter is such a knucklehead at this point. I mean, he's gonna go on to, to do some really ugly things, some terrible things, uh, some embarrassing things. But Jesus tells him, hey, Peter, you're in. And all Peter's, Peter's only confession is, we're following you, Jesus. We're trying to follow you. And, and even then, if Peter was honest, it would be like, hey, Jesus, we're, we're following you like 50% of the time, Right? Like, I get it right half the time, but then the other half, I'm really messing it up. And Jesus is like, that's, a, that's enough. That's okay. That's enough. I'll, I will help you because with God, with God, all things are possible. So Peter, I will help you. I will sustain you. You are in. So if you want to follow Jesus like Peter, God will help you and you are in. When you give up your self-sufficiency, 
He will help you and you are in. And here's why this is so important. Really, really important, I think. I've talked with a lot of Christians who constantly wrestle with this idea of, am I in or not? Am I in or not? And there's a healthy level of fear, right? There's a, there's, there's a place where like, it, there can be a healthy level of existential, you know, looking inward and self-examination. There, there, there's a healthy level of that. Um, but it's not a place to exist forever, It's not a good place to be forever. There's a kind of rested hope and assurance that is healthy to grow into. And it's it's this. It's knowing that in the moments of my deepest failure, in the moments of your deepest failure, that Jesus said in John 10, 28, that nobody can snatch you out of the Father's hands. Nobody can snatch you out of the Father's hands. And Jesus is actually quoting Isaiah 49, 16, which says, I have engraved you into the palm of my hands. I've engraved your name into the palms of my hands. Isn't that interesting language coming from the prophet Isaiah talking about a permanent scarring of the palms of the hands? The idea is that your name is engraved into the hands of Christ. And indeed, church, when you see Jesus for the first time and fall at his feet, I think, uh, you will see the engraving in his hands. It's still there to this day. The scars will remain forever. And it will be a reminder to you that he has you, he helps you, he sustains you, you are in. There's a rested hope and assurance that if you follow Jesus, even imperfectly, like Peter, whoever has left anything to follow Jesus is in. And I think that some of us probably need to remember that encouragement today. Um, time for us to take communion. And communion is a time where we recognize the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. To do this in remembrance of him, not in remembrance of our good works or our self-sufficiency. No, this here, when we come and we take the bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice, It's a representation of his sufficiency for us, that his body was broken, his blood was shed for us. And you don't have to be a member of this church to take communion, but it is for those who have said, I'm following Jesus, I'm following Jesus. And so if you haven't done this, right? If you're you're here today and you're like, I don't believe that Jesus is God and I haven't submitted myself to Jesus, Um, And maybe you might even find yourself a little bit sad, like this man in this story. I would encourage you not to participate today, but to pray, to think about what we see here today. And and just pray maybe that, uh, that, (laughs) that the Lord would overcome your unbelief, if that's where you're at, if you're able to do that. That you would um, not be given over to the things of this world, but that you would be willing to let it go for the sake of Jesus. Now, if you're, if you're here today, however imperfectly trying to do that, 
whether you're a member of this church or not, you're, you're welcome to come and take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice as your conscience permits. There'll be a station right over here. There's a station right over here. Uh, for those of you that might have a gluten intolerance, there's gonna be a gluten-free option over here as well. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for um, Mark 10. We thank you for the narrative we see here. Father, I'm touched by Jesus expressing love for this man. And I know that Jesus loves us too. And, um, and Lord, today I pray that your spirit would convict us of the areas in our life that we are, um, where we're violating those top four commands. Where we, where we, I pray that you would expose and shine a light on our hearts and the areas where we have given ourselves over to other things. Lord, I pray that you would give us some grit to fight against those things, to continually pick ourselves up every day if necessary by the strength and the help of your spirit to fight against those things. And I pray that you would give us victory over our sin. Lord, we know that, only, that this could only be accomplished because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so as we come forward here today, Lord, we remember that we hold up Jesus, not our wealth, not our own self-sufficiency. Lord, we come today and our posture is that we want to hold up what Jesus has done for us. We pr- and that's why we pray these things in Jesus's name. Amen.